Hello, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Today's message is, be good to each other. Life is painful enough. To willingly and with callousness make life more difficult for someone means that you should die in a fire. Just a quick note on the intro. It wasn't because something bad happened to me. Like, I posted this up on Facebook, pretty well the same message, and there was, you know, the flood of, you know, thoughts and prayers as usual. And it was quite the opposite. I just had a really great experience that day where I was genuinely nice to all the customers at work, and then they were genuinely nice back to me. So I just thought, you know, why can't this just be the way it is? If people are genuinely nice to each other, then usually you get the same response. It is a minor miracle that you work retail and yet maintain a sunny view of humanity. That's that's quite something. So today we're going to, as we normally do, talk about games we played this week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. Our feature game this week is Shadespire, and our topic of today is going to be house rules and what we think of them. So what did you play this week, Mark? I'm returning to normalcy. Uh, it's been a good week for games. Played some more Han, which I talked about last week. Tried the different maps, different player counts. It's still a great game. My recommendation still holds up. We played some more Rising Sun, which we also have talked about at great, great length. Uh, for what it's worth, I think my observations and my feelings are holding up that it is a complex, opaque system that is potentially unforgiving, especially to new players. I don't know if your thoughts have evolved any, any past that. No, it's pretty well the same. I've been accused of using the same strategy over and over again, but it's more, more likely I'm just once again trying to break a system and seeing if it can be stopped, and I always seem to fall into the factions that just aid to that particular strategy. So, What kind of callous fool would, would dare accuse you of pursuing the same thing over and over again? Ah, it's just some ignorant person that's tired of losing, I suppose. <laughs> Interesting, interesting. That's a little bit of fake news there. Uh, sure, fine, whatever. So listen to our episode last week where we go into great, great, great depth about Rising Sun. We've still played it some more, and uh, yeah, I don't think our opinions have changed, which is both good and bad, I think, overall for me, probably more good than bad for you. As to new games that I played last week, though, I'll start off by talking about a game called Clans of Caledonia. This is a game that entered my radar a while ago because it is advertised as being extremely similar to, but in some ways very different from, Terra Mystica. And I want to like Terra Mystica. I think that much was evident when we talked about Gaia Project. It's a game that I want to like, and in some ways I feel it's a game that I should like, but I, I have some fundamental problems with the system. Clans of Caledonia, I can report enjoying a lot more than both Terra Mystica and Gaia Project. It's more focused on an economy, there's a supply and demand element of all these goods that you're going to be producing. So the uh, economy is more robust. You're not just looking at three goods to plop out more buildings. The buildings, in many ways, are a means to an end in Clans of Caledonia because that, that helps you better manipulate the goods that you have available to you. It's also the case that your primary scoring in Clans of Caledonia are going to be by satisfying these import-export tokens. You have to get these objective tiles that say, I need three units of cheese and two units of whiskey. And if you do that, you get all these these bonuses. And as a result, you're given tangible short-term goals, and you can look across the table and easily see what other people are going after, and that feeds into the economy. Anyway, I was very pleasantly surprised by the quality of Clans of Caledonia. It's a lot of game in a very, very small box package, and I'm looking forward to exploring the system more, but early reports are very positive. So if you like Terra Mystica, I'd say give it a shot, because again, they are very similar. 
And if you don't like Terra Mystica and wanted things to be a little bit more interactive, to, to for the economy to be a little bit more nuanced and for it to be more than just about plopping up buildings, then it, then it might satisfy you. I will say, though, and this is probably going to be grounds for a future topic at some point once my thoughts have matured, I have been thinking a lot about games that borrow heavily from other designs and how much is too much, when when is something derivative instead of iterative, and how much credit needs to be given. Clans of Caledonia definitely falls into this aspect. When reading the rules, even within the first few pages, it's evident that this is very clearly inspired by Terra Mystica. I would be completely shocked if the designer had not already played Terra Mystica a bunch before designing Clans of Caledonia. And I'm just generally ruminating on what is appropriate deference, what is appropriate credit, Suffice to say that if you're looking for stunning originality, I don't think you're going to find it in Clans of Caledonia, but it's uh, a worthy, I think, improvement on its its forebear. So that was Clans of Caledonia. On the same sort of thing, I also got to get Gaia Project to the table again. The only thing we already talked about it at length, the only thing I want to add is we talked about how the faction limitations instead of you know improving your choices sort of handcuff you or or bottleneck you into certain things and i just want to counterpoint that to the game i thought it sort of challenged me to try different things and sort of you know uh, hindered you from doing certain things thereby challenging you to get victory points in another way or you know making it more difficult so if it's a game that you play multiple times then i can see where it would be beneficial whereas if you only bring it to the table once in a while i can see where you might feel uh, limited and bottlenecked. This is kind of a close cousin to Stockholm Syndrome. Just because something challenges you, Walker, doesn't mean that it's deep. Sometimes it's more about you than the game itself. I suppose. <laughs> Another game I got to the table for the first time recently was Path of Light and Shadow. This is a deck builder put out very recently by Indie Boards and Cards. It was designed by Travis Chance and Nick Little. They had previously designed a game called Infamy, which I haven't tried, and Heroes Wanted, which I did, which I thought was surprisingly cute, and by Jonathan Gilmore. And Jonathan Gilmore is a Plaid Hat Games regular. He put out Dead of Winter and a number of other things, and I have regularly disliked everything he's done. But Path of Light and Shadow was a strange experience for me. First of all, I I think I should emphasize that the other three people with whom I played really liked the game. They thoroughly enjoyed it and thought, well, they seemed to. That's what they said. They could all be lying to me. I, I can never know if people are telling me the truth, so I assume that everyone hates me all the time, which is probably true. As things were progressing, new details would emerge that they thought were novel. So so the overall reaction to the table was very positive. I strongly disliked two things about the game. And then I'll talk a little bit about the things that I liked. Uh, the downtime was huge. It, there was very, very serious downtime. Turns are relatively short, but not short enough. And with four players around the board, you're just sitting around watching them manipulate their deck which isn't super engaging. Dominion and other games like that when they're deck builders, you know, you have nothing to do during your turn, but at least the turns are lightning fast. And Path of Light and Shadow, although a relatively standard deck builder in a number of ways, has this element of moving around a map and doing attacks and so forth. And the attacks are fine when you're involved or when other players are involved. Getting people, watching people fight each other is, is at least mildly engaging. But when someone's just figuring out what cards to upgrade, more on that later, and other things and just, spending a whole bunch of time drawing and manipulating cards. It reminds me about the worst aspects of Dominion, which is I play a village, I play a village, I draw a card, I play a village, I shuffle my deck, I play a village, I buy a silver, which is why mostly I don't play Dominion anymore. Uh, Walker is getting flashbacks and he's yeah, shuddering yeah, here. Yeah, I threw up a little in my mouth. Yeah, and Path of the Light and Shadow sometimes has similar things. Now, they're more consequential than village, 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 silver. Things are happening to the player that are actually cool, but 
if you're not involved, it's not terribly engaging. The second thing that I thought was problematic was anybody who's played a multiplayer conflict game and thought of the various problems almost inherent in the genre. We actually talked a lot about this in an unreleased pilot episode. We might revisit the topic again later. One of the big problems about conflict games is if A and B fight, C will win. And that's very, very true here. If two people are fighting each other, then the person who's not attacked will walk away with the game. And indeed, the winner of the game, at the end of it, his score was, uh, I think, a good third above his nearest competitor. And he shrugged. And this was this Partially, this was humility, because he did outplay us. But he shrugged and said, yeah, no one attacked me. And sure enough, that is indeed the route to success. And I don't know if that is going to recur, but it, it, there's definitely a pile-on effect of Path and Light and Shadow, because if you attack somebody, you soften them up. And it makes it easier for someone else to swoop in. Just you saying that, that's something I want to look into. It's almost like the evolution of games where you can see in a lot of the newer games, they lock down the combat phase. Like Cry Havoc and all these other places, all these other games where the combat phase is a totally separate, like all the movement's done and then all the combat happens at once. And it sort of stops that sort of, you know, waiting to see who's weak and picking on the weak person because all of the combat's locked down at once. So I'm wondering, I'll have to look into that more. It seems to be something like that's the the newest way to stop that from happening. That's one way to do it. I prefer when it in, when it's a little more organic. I've talked about this before in terms of liking games to be open rather than more rigid in terms of the turn structure. And I think Blood Rage does it very well in terms of there, there's no benefit to picking on people in Blood Rage and indeed Attacks aren't limited to the end. Attacks are an action you take. Kemet is the same way. Kemet avoids a lot of those problems. But as I say, there's a lot to be said about multiplayer conflict games and various ways to address the problem. Suffice to say that Path of Light and Shadow doesn't really use any of them. And I will emphasize the one way in which it's great. It's really, really good in that your cards upgrade in a specific path. That is not the Path of Light and Shadow bit of of the title, but... Card A upgrades to a specific card B, which in turn upgrades to a specific card C, and and card C is amazing. So it's not just a question of waiting to get enough money or whatever currency you want to buy that next better card. It's about an organic progression from one unit to the next. And the uh, the game also has another thing going for it. I flag whenever a game represents women in unfortunate ways. Path of Light and Shadow does a really, really good job. The women here are fully clothed, look badass, And it also seems to, I I think this was a a deliberate attempt to include people of color in the game because it's not just, it's a fantasy world where it's not just a whole bunch of Caucasians running around. And so I think credit where credit is due, the art design is very, very good. It's well-executed art and it doesn't make me embarrassed to be a board gamer. So kudos to that. I am going to play the game again because it got a very, very good uh, reception and a number of things about it are very neat. But I'm a little bit worried about how it deals with conflict overall and the downtime is an issue. So that's Path of Light and Shadow. All right. I'm going to move on to a game we played together. My Kickstarter for The World of Smog, Rise of Moloch came in. And overall, it was fine. I'm a little disappointed because I don't think it really brought anything new to the table. But it yet once again fragmented the way I look at games and how I rate them internally in my head. Like, I I never really give games numbers because I really feel it matters the type of people and the number of people and the atmosphere and the whole way you bring a game to the table. That's a very verbose way of saying you can't count, right? Exactly. Getting to 10 is very difficult. They have people have to stand around wait for me to get my shoes and socks off. It's very embarrassing. But moving on, I really think the story is going to bring, i.e. the fragmentation now is going to be 
games that I really enjoy the rule set that bring more things to the table that interact with each other that are great and then entertainment games that just are entertaining to play like World of Smog like uh, Twilight Imperium like Charterstone where it's just the atmosphere and the people that you're playing with give it a higher rating than just the rule set itself so in the World of Smog it's Victorian steampunk Versus zombies, the typical thing where you're just creating dice pools. Hey, look, this is how many attacks I rolled. This is how much defense I got. I just sort of like dropped the book and 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 said, really, this is this is the evolution. But anyway, that's World of Smog. It's only a couple gameplays in. I'll talk about it more once I've gotten into the story a bit more. What did you think of it? I'm more or less in the same boat. I thought that the setting was reasonably well done. I thought that there were lovely little touches to differentiate it thematically from similar games, like one of the character classes is dilettante. I thought that was a, a lovely little touch, and not just because I've always aspired to be a dilettante all my life. I think I'm doing a pretty good job of it. I mean, the key to being a good dilettante is to never really try at anything, and so I think I've got that cornered. And the artwork is the artwork is nice. The miniatures, I, look, I'll, I'll say this. They, they spend a lot of time thinking about some of the poses. There are some little details here and there in the graphic design and the poses of the minis that really help sell the setting. And that's very much appreciated because, again, cool mini or not, they've found a way to relatively inexpensively produce boxes chock full of plastic. And so it's really about finding those little bits of edge to to differentiate them, and they're doing a great job. The rules are hopelessly derivative in any number of ways. And where they're not derivative, sometimes they're just, you know, leaning on some of the conventions that I think are unfortunate. One of the things, and this is a personal preference, in games like this, I don't like it when it just degenerates into static dice chucking. I like it where there's a certain amount of fluidity, there's a certain amount of mobility involved, you have to care about positioning, you have to care about where you're going and how fast you're going and pacing. But here in this game, it, it's too easy in World of Smog to base somebody. And that's that's a term for minis gaming where an enemy is next to you so you can't move. And that happens a lot. So at the end of the day, in World of Smog, if you start out next to somebody, you're probably just going to whack them upside the head a couple times, and that's your turn. And sure, it's got upgrade cards and a whole bunch of other stuff to help differentiate that, but meh. It, it's also a one-versus-all game, where one person plays as the overlord equivalent, exactly. and every other person takes a character. And one-versus-all games really don't do it for me in a number of hard-to-explain ways. I, I don't like it. The, that level of asymmetry I find unpleasant for some reason. I, I, I could go in more, more detail, but it won't be any more illuminating, so I'm not going to waste your time. And I already have a one-versus-all game that I really, really like, namely Level 7 Omega Protocol, which I think is mechanically very clever and does a lot of things really well. It's not as good at selling the theme as World of Smog is, but, uh, you know, I'm a heartless Eurogamer deep in my core anyway. So I'm going to, I'll probably try it another couple of times with you. And again, like everyone around the table seems to really like the setting and like the theme and, and all the different characters involved. And, uh, and we haven't got into the story yet, so who knows? And that, I think that's going to be a topic for another thing is like how much, how many of these one versus all games can we take? Like Kickstarter is a glut for them. There's yet another one coming out that I'm going to talk about in the news. And this, how many, how many do we need? Always one more. Apparently. Always one more. Is it going to be a story of love and loss full of character development? And well, will I laugh? Will I cry? Will I lose 15 pounds? It'll be a single tear. It will be fantastic. 
My last thing I'm going to talk about quickly, even though the world of Smog was mine, is going to be uh, Deception. I brought it out with the family, so it was all new players. And just a quick note, was a, it was just a fantastic moment where someone threw in a badge and made a guess. And the person they made against, the guess against immediately went, nope. So, <laughs> right? And, and I just, and we, everyone just sort of looked at them and the waves of laughter that went across the table. Because obviously we were on the right you know, on the right person, but we just picked the wrong cards. And it was, it was a quite hilarious moment and just proves that it is a fantastic game. I had a good session of deception this week as well. It's yeah, <laughs> it's really good. Do you have anything else for the games played this week? Nope. All right. So on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right. So my first news article is there's a new board game company here in Canada called Luma Games. They're going to be producing games in both English and Latin. So that's going to be good. Walker, it's not Latin. Stop lying to people. Oh, sorry. I I always get those two dead languages mixed up. I'm sorry. Walker is referring to French, which is my second language, a language I speak with pride. Coming as I do from French Canada, I consider myself part of the Francophonie, and so he insists on denigrating my culture, mostly because he doesn't have any culture. So yes, they're the first... (laughs) I'll just ignore exactly everything you said. So their first thing is going to be Museum. It's a Kickstarter game that came out, so they're going to be producing that for oh, the last market. Oh, they're doing Museum. Okay. Yeah. They, did they pick it up or did they develop it? They're, they just picked it up. I see. From what I, I read. I could be completely wrong, but from what I read, it's just something they've picked up. Good for them. What have you got? I have uh, that the Robotech RPG Tactics Kickstarter has finally, finally come to its end. I should stress that I'm a big Macross fan. Uh, Macross is a show that first showed up in the early 80s in Japan and was eventually adapted into a weird hybrid show called Robotech. I'm basically a sucker for any story that involves giant robots in a love triangle. And for that, mostly you have to turn to Japanese fiction for that ki- that particular fix. But anyway. It's not a hard turn either. It's just a slight glance and you'll get it, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. So the licensing for Macross in North America has been very, very complicated by virtue of the existence of Robotech and the shenanigans of the company that holds the rights to it in North America, namely a company called Harmony Gold. And Battletech was hit by this. Battletech for a while had Robotech uh, slash Macross Mecha in it. Anybody who was old enough to remember the original Warhammer and things like that from Battletech, that was all from Macross. It called the Tomahawk. Anyway, I could go into this rabbit hole for a long time, but suffice to say, the licensing has always been a bit complicated. And in 2012, Palladium Games, run by Kevin Simbieta, mostly known for their uh, Rifts line of role-playing games, decided to put out a Kickstarter for a miniatures game based on Macross. And I, of course, fell for it hook, line, and sinker, and I threw a couple hundred bucks at them. It took them many years, but they eventually produced what was called Wave 1. And then the years went by and went by. Fulfillment was supposed to be in 2013, and it's only now in 2018 that Kevin Sembieta limped onto the internet and said, yeah, guys, you're never getting your stuff and you're never getting any money back. So there's a number of stories about where the money went. There's a lot of speculation about whether it was actually used in an effort to produce Wave 2. But there are a number, there's a lot of people, there's several thousand people who are out various quantities of money. And Simbieta is, the thing that bothers me the most is in many ways how incredibly unapologetic he is. He says, look, first of all, it wasn't my fault. It was some other company that we contracted. It's their fault. And they, you know, screwed everything up and, you know, something, something Chinese New Year. And the, the, wor- the worst part about it is because I gave up my money a long, I gave up my money for a loss a long time ago. I was one of the suckers who backed up front. I was one of the suckers who gave money for the Robotech miniatures game. 
And it's just the tone at the end of his announcement where no one's getting any any of their money, where he says, look, guys, you know, this is this is what Kickstarter is. You sign up for an adventure and, uh, you know, sometimes things happen. We tried our best. So we're still friends. Right. And it's just this incredible douchebaggery. The douchebaggery is so potent. I, I, I can't. It's it's really worth it, It's something to see. It's something to see. So don't necessarily begrudge Sambieta for the project failing overall, but the way in which it failed <laughs> is a little bit of rancor. And arrogance beyond measure. Exactly. And they are now losing their license. So the license through Harmony Gold is expiring. Some other company is going to try to produce some Robotech games. They've already demoed some prototypes. One very light game and a, a slightly more involved uh, cooperative game. So I wish them the best of luck. Maybe we're going to see some more licensed Macross stuff in the future, but that's entirely independent of the fact that Palladium Games screwed the pooch. I'm out a fair bit of money, and what's worse is that the guy who took it is being a jerk about it. That's unfortunate. My next one I put in just for you, Mark. Terraforming Mars is getting another expansion. Woo! It's called Prelude, and it's going to be mostly making your corporation that much more unique. So that sounds interesting. Because I was always thinking that the problem with Terraforming Mars was it was too quick. I really think that what it needs is a fourth or fifth hour to really make it shine. And I also have Fireball Island by Restoration Games is is going to be coming to Kickstarter. I saw that. I'm wondering if it's going to fall into yet one of these other things, you know, where you think fondly back on these on these on these moments in movies and games and think how great it was and then when you actually go back to it, it's very disappointing. They are going to change the rules, so maybe, but you know, I can just think of Mousetrap, right? It's one of these like fiddly things that sounds great and looks great, but guess what? You know, after the first, you know, you watch the, you know, you watch the marble go down the mountain the first time and you're like, oh, this is great. And then the second time it's like, okay, done. If I'm going to play with toys, I want there to be a good game in there as well. That's one of the reasons why I love HeroScape so much. But even as a child, when I had Fireball Island, I remember it was, uh, I think I got it from Zeller's back in the day when there was such a thing as Zeller's. This was definitely pre-teenager, so the oldest I could have been was 12. I remember reading the rules and realizing, wait, so when do you make choices in this game? And this was long before I played games seriously, and <laughs> so one hopes that they're going to improve it. This is this Restoration Games is being spearheaded by Rob Daviau, who I think is it's fair to say the market has realized that Daviau is not the you know the genius wunderkind that he portrays himself as. Risk Legacy was a work of genius. Whatever you think about the end product, the, the conceit was great. But this is post-Seafall. This is post a number of other restoration games where people said, eh, this doesn't look like a very good redevelopment. So time will tell. I'm cautiously optimistic. I hope it at least looks cool. It's going to be on Kickstarter, so it'll get the deluxification it needs, apparently. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Slow down. First of all, that word is an abomination. And secondly, it's trademarked from Tasty Minstrel. You Sorry. do not get did, to use did that, that word. slip out? I totally said it not knowing that you disliked it. Nobody I'm should. So sorry. Nobody should use that word, and I don't even know if we're allowed to use that word. All right, my last item. Batman, giant Kickstarter by Monolith Games. They also did Conan and Mythic Battles. Currently sitting at 2.6 million American dollars on Kickstarter. But like I said earlier, it's yet another one versus all game. But it is using the Conan system. I wanted to try out this mechanism. I had it a little bit in the new Civ game. You know, the sliding action mechanism. A new dawn. A new dawn. And I'm 
I'm wondering if I should give this, you know, as you know, tax return season, should I make this my tax return gift? It's just the models that are coming out for it are looking better and better. It's, is it going to be another thing where you'd be crazy not to buy it due to just the number? Like it's still got more than 20 days left. How high is this going to go? How many more miniatures are there going to be? So it's, we'll wait and see, I guess. First of all, this could be one of the finest licensed games ever, right? Just because most licensed games are utter trash. So even if it's mediocre, it'll probably be pretty good as a licensed property. And secondly, uh, I was similarly dismissive of the Mythic Battles Pantheon Kickstarter when it came out. And it turned out to be far more clever than it has any right to be. Monolith seems to know what it's doing. This is this is a company that is only producing things through Kickstarter. And every project it's been making for the past few uh, a few projects has cracked several million bucks. And, of course, they deliver late because it's Kickstarter and that's just the way of things. But their later releases seem, seem to have been progressively more solid. I wasn't a huge fan of a lot of the things surrounding Conan. You know, fixed player count, 1v all, uh, scenarios where you only get to use a limited number of characters. If you want to play a specific character, you have to go to a specific scenario, things like that. Maybe those things will be ironed out in Batman, who knows, but... I don't know that it's it deserves wholehearted support, but I don't know that it deserves to be dismissed out of hand either. I think it's a very sort of cautious wait-and-see attitude, and hopefully we'll get a little bit more information about how the game is going to work. So yeah, I've heard overall good things about Conan. The only negative thing I heard was the fact that everyone wants to play Conan. It's only fun to play Conan, but from the other characters I've seen Batman so far, I would be more than happy to play something other than Batman. The other characters seem very interesting and not... As, you know, the other way, you know, Conan, it's like peasant number one or Conan, right? So we'll see. And that's all I have for news. Now on to our feature game this week, which is Shadespire by Games Workshop. It's a great skirmish game, and Mark will now place it in the historical annals of gaming. I'm certainly no scribe of Games Workshop, but a few years ago, they basically relaunched Warhammer Fantasy into this new thing called Age of Sigmar. And like any major development in a long-running property that is beloved by many, of course, it's, it's generated no end of controversy. The tone has changed, a lot of the art has changed, a lot of the factions have shifted around, and the full title of Shadespire is Warhammer Underworlds colon Shadespire. And there's some, you know, fluff about how it's in some weird cursed city where people are forever doomed to never die, blah, 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 whatever. It's a whole bunch of nonsense. I've never liked any of the Games Workshop fluff. I will give them credit, though, for, with Age of Sigmar, trying to move a little bit past the more obvious Lord of the Rings callouts, right? Most Western fantasy certainly as produced in North America, has basically been circling around the drain of Lord of the Rings for many generations and hasn't evolved much past that. My perception is that Age of Sigmar does move, move the needle a little. So credit where credit is due, I suppose. We've talked a lot, you and I, about how Lately, we haven't been into, uh, I've never been, and I don't think you have been for a while, into any of the core Games Workshop products, 40k, fantasy, even their, you know, Lord of the Rings miniatures game back when they were still pumping that hardcore. But their boxed games, their standalone box content is often shockingly good. We're both huge fans of Space Hulk. We like Necromunda. We like a lot of those other things that they put out. And Shadespire is very much in that tradition. This is a very well done skirmish game in a very crowded field. And it displays a lot of really shockingly incisive developments on the formula. So you don't have to situate it anywhere in the broader Warhammer universe. It's a standalone entity, both thematically, if you care, which I certainly don't, 
and mechanically. You don't need a huge collection of minis, and you don't even really need that much financial investment to get started. It's a very inexpensive product by Games Workshop standards. And so in terms of a lot of the stereotypes, well-earned stereotypes about Games Workshop products, it's very much uh, apart from the course in that it is innovative, accessible, and cheap. Three things that usually can't be said of any of their core products, at least as far as I'm concerned. So with that in mind, why don't you give us a, a brief rundown on what one does in Shadespire, Walker? All right, so what Shadespire is, is definitely a game designed for a tournament-style play. Set armies, so every, your army is going to be the same number of figures, the same figures every time, but where you get to go get into army crafting is your two decks of cards. One is your objective cards, things you're going to score sometimes during your turn, but mostly during like the end phase. And the other deck is actions and upgrades you're going to get. So every turn you get four action tokens, which you're going to activate to activate your figures. And I think that's something worth emphasizing right away. This is a three-round game, and each round you get four activations. So that's 12 things you get to do, which is very, very small, especially by the standards of games like this. Most of the time, in certainly the more derivative games like this, and we've been talking already a lot in this episode about how a lot of games with minis fall into sort of very derivative, predictable patterns. So I get to do my things, and then you get to do your things, and everyone activates. I move, and then I attack. I move, and then I attack. Or I do my two attacks, or whatever. And so you just basically all the choices boil down to which target am I going to target with which person. Now, and don't get me wrong, on occasion I'm very much down for that kind of game. But because in Shadespire you only get to do 12 activations total, suddenly it's not so trivial. We've all had the experience in lots of skirmish games of activating a character who's incredibly inconsequential, so it doesn't really matter what they go and do, or they're situated in such a way that there's nothing substantial they can do, so they just move their movement allowance and then they waste their second action or things like that. We've been doing this for years, in our cases, literally decades. And Shadespire avoids all this, because when you have to activate something, it is crucial what you do, because you're representing almost 10% of your total game capacity in terms of activations. So that's the first thing that I'd like to flag. It's really, really clever in how it forces you to think very critically about who to activate and when. So like I was saying, and then the play, the activations, like it'll go back and forth between the two players. And then after three turns, whoever has the most objective points wins. And that's Shadespire. So let's talk about those objectives then, because I think that also in terms of the victory conditions of this game, it really starts to shine. You mentioned that there's deck construction. When I sit down to play the game, I, I haven't gotten into a serious organized play mentality. I don't have like the favorite deck that I craft within an inch of its life. I usually try to do slightly different things every time just to see the, the system play out. But the most crucial element of this game is most of your points, or, or at least a non-trivial number of your points, are going to come from your objective deck, which is 12 cards that you've picked before the start of the game. These are the things I need to go do. And so it's more than just about going and killing everybody or sitting on a capture point or what have you. You really do get to play to your strengths, either you as a player or the strengths of your factions. And the most variety, the most bang for your buck, I think, in terms of customizing the experience is in the form of this, this victory objective deck. And I think that was extremely well done. Yeah, not only are these points that you need to win the game, these points you need to upgrade your characters, right? Because in order to play those other cards of your deck that are your upgrade cards, you flip over your, your objective tokens. You don't actually have to spend them gone, but you flip them over to say that they've been activated and you get to play these cards on your characters to make them better. So if you've got characters that, you know, you want to upgrade quickly, you're going to have to make sure you have objectives that you're going to score right away. 
That was something I initially didn't like much because the game forces you... So as we said, there's the 12, 12 objective cards, and then you have a deck of at least 20 of these power cards, which contain both upgrades and instant cards that are called ploys. And your deck must consist of at least half of upgrades. Initially, I thought that was a serious restriction, and I thought it was a major drag. But no, what it does is it forces you to think critically about what upgrades you want in, and it really puts an emphasis on these upgrades. Because if, if the game had too many one-shot cards, if people were going one-shot cards all over the place, it would be a little bit too much madness. Nobody would bother with the upgrades. It's It would it, be a little too wonky and a little bit too freeform. The fact that you're going to have dead cards in your hand because you're not able to put out enough upgrades is indeed part of the game and managing that element. I've got, you know, four upgrades in my hand and I'm only going to be able to put out two of them means you have to think carefully both about the cards you put in your deck and how to use it once the game actually starts. Yeah, so these, and the objective cards are, some of them are faction specific. So when you get a faction, you have some objective cards that only you can take. And then there's a giant deck of generic ones that you can pick and choose and customize your deck however you want. So you can customize it to the strengths of your faction, or you can, or you can, depending on how it goes, like if you're just playing a friendly game and you know what, what faction your opponent's going to play, you can sort of factor in that and take objective cards that are going to be easier to obtain and in the great tradition of using cards cleverly, the cards contain most of the complexity. The fighters themselves, the actual characters that you bring to the fight, as you said, they're fixed. If you pick a faction, you'll always be playing those fixed characters. And the characters, because a lot of the complexity comes from these upgrades, come from other ploys that might be faction-specific, the complexity on the fighters is very, very, very low. So at the, especially at the start of the game... You don't need to know too much about what the, the other fighters are packing. They, they only have three core stats and then a basic attack. And it's very easy to look across the table and see what the fighters can do. Now, as a minor gripe, matching the fighter card with the actual miniature on the board can sometimes get a bit tricky. But that's largely just a, a function of the fact that I don't paint my miniatures because I can't. And the fact that we don't play it enough. There are lots of games that we talk about on this podcast yes. that we wish we could play more, but... <laughs> There's only a limited amount of There's hours in the day. thing called time. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And the faction differentiation, just to dovetail with that, is very good. The, the different factions differ not only in terms of the unique cards that they can bring to bear and in the stats of the individual uh, characters, but the, they even vary in terms of the number of fighters that they bring to the fight. At, at present, with the six factions that have been released so far, two in the core game and four as expansions, they range from three all the way to seven. So as you can imagine... The tactics and strategies you have to adopt based on how many fighters you have gets really, really, really big. The other way I want to talk about how they differ is the inspiring part of the game, is that on the backs of all these character cards is something that usually, in most cases, makes them better, changes up how the character acts or you know increases their stats in some way, and every faction does it a different way, and I thought it was a, it was a really neat part of the game. It's really well done. I've talked before, I mean, I mentioned it even this episode about Clans of Caledonia. I like it when a game gives you short-term goals. And each faction, as you say, has its own criterion for how their fighters get inspired, which is a boost to some of their stats. Not only do their boosts work differently based on what faction they are, some factions get faster, some get higher wounds or hit harder, but it's also the case that it forces you to adapt to what you know your faction wants to do. For example, a game we just played very recently, one of the new factions, the Dwarves, any time at the end of a turn they're sitting on an objective space, whether it causes them to score or not, they become inspired. Suddenly I know that I can't let you sit on any of those spaces. I have to dislodge you. 
And so it really changes up the way you think about how to approach different engagements in Shadespire. Yeah, I like how they made it very thematic too, like how you do it sort of reflects back on who you're playing and even the stat increases also reflect that. I thought it's overall a great part of the game. Absolutely. I'd like to talk about the maneuver system for a little bit because to my mind, this is, I think, the one thing that really makes Shadespire stand head and shoulders above a lot of other of its, its close competitors in the skirmish market because far too many skirmish games don't place enough emphasis on good maneuvering. And in Shadespire, you really have to be careful about how to move because it's a three-round game, and once your fighter moves in a given round, it can't move ever again. You have four activations, and you can spend all of those four activations on the same fighter if you want to. It gives you that level of tactical flexibility. But once they've moved, that's it. They're stuck there, absent certain you know other effects through cards and so forth. So you have to be very careful about where they're going to situate themselves and where you want to commit. Layered on top of this is the, the fact that you can charge. You can, with a single activation, move and then attack. But then not only will you be stationary for the rest of the round because you've moved, but a special result of the charge is they're not going to be able to be activated again this round, period. So they basically played out for a third of the game. This can be very useful because you can seize the advantage and you can go and take advantage on a single activation and get effectively two actions. But you have to know that you can, you're can you comfortable leaving that fighter as a sitting duck for the rest of the round. And layered on top of this, the thing that really, I think, cements it all, when you successfully attack somebody, you're able to drive them back. You're able to shove them back a space. And in a game where you can move as many times as you like every time you give them an activation, this would be trivial. This would be almost inconsequential because they would just move back with their next activation. But here, it really matters. If you've seized the initiative, either figuratively or literally, and you've gone and you're sitting on that objective space, I now need to wonder, how am I going to get you off that? I could charge, but if I fail that charge, that fighter is a sitting duck, and the person that you just moved to sit on that objective will just wail on me for a whole bunch of activations, and so there's a risk there. On the other hand, I could just move up, but then you'll be able to counterattack before I get my attack out either. But if I charge and I succeed, and I drive you off, you've already moved. You can't move back onto that activation anymore. And if I drive you back in just the right way, if I've set things up properly, that might be setting up other attacks or other things that I can do to you. It's great. These little tactical trade-offs are so often missing in games like this. And because of the way Shadespire limits you with a small number of activations and the fact that you can't move again in the same round after you've moved with a fighter, I think it's really clever and works very, very well. Yeah, the same sort of thing works for my next point is the fact, since it's such a short game, in the old days we played these games where you like completely have to wipe out the other side. And in this game, you don't even have to kill any figures whatsoever, depending on what objectives you picked. And so you can get these overpowered characters or these unbalancing dice rolls or bad card draw, and it's all litigated by the fact that the game is so short and you can sort of manipulate this in a way that, you know, it really doesn't matter. You really have to get into the right headspace, I think. And you're, in a first couple, your first couple of games of Shadespire, it's not that the system is opaque or difficult to internalize. It's just it does things in a sufficiently novel way that some of your initial reactions might be wrong. For example, when one of your fighters dies, you might think that that's a serious setback. Nah, this is a short game. If somebody spends one of their activations to kill one of your guys, 
Well, they've spelt, they've just spent a twelfth of their total offensive capability over the course of the game, and you've probably got other guys too. And the goal isn't to wipe out the other faction. It can be the goal, if that's how you built your deck. If you want that to be the goal, it can be. But some factions even profit from having their fighters eliminated. Some factions even like it when that happens. One faction inspires when there are three dead fighters in the game. Not necessarily your fighters, just fighters in general. So if you're getting wailed on, well, then your survivors are going to get better. The undead love it when you kill their guys, because then they can come back stronger. The Skaven like it if when you kill their guys, because they have an objective card that says, score this if two of your guys are dead. And so it's always this trade-off. You never want, it's never just about mindless violence, although, you know, Let's not undercut the joys of mindless violence. But you have to be very, very, very conscientious of what you're doing and why. Every attack has to matter because, again, of the clever constraints that the game has put on the system. It's very hard to describe this game to people because on its surface, if you just break it down to the game mechanics, you're drawing random cards off of two random decks and rolling dice on top of this. So, you know, on the surface, it, it, it sounds ludicrous, but it works. It is the case that it looks a lot more arbitrary than it is. It does reward experience. That having been said, now I think I can talk about a couple of the things that I don't like about the game. The dice system is a bit wonky. It seems to lead to very, very strange results. Again, because the game is so tight and so tightly focused, there's only going to be 24 activations total over the course of the entire game, 12 for 12 per player, a couple of really unfortunate dice rolls can skew the game considerably. And without going into too much detail, because the dice system is actually reasonably involved, but there are attack dice and defense dice, and it is not uncommon for a very, very, very strong attack to be turned aside by some feeble fighter just because that's the way the dice work. And that can be unsatisfying. I don't like it where games like that happen, and there isn't a high volume of dice. Claustrophobia, for what it's worth, managed uh, to get around that because they found a way to make a tight game that doesn't last very long and they managed to find a way to involve tons and tons of dice rolling in there because that's that's what you do with arbitrary systems in order to level out the probability curve you just include more dice and so you hope that it's going to level out i've also spoken in the past about how i'm i'm increasingly the opinion that a game should have attack dice or defense dice but not both because again that just increases the scope of, of weird random results. I, I point to the change of X-Wing, uh, the X-Wing game from FFG having attack and defense dice, and you get some bizarre results there, both unsatisfying and, and, and otherwise. And then they evolved it into Armada, where you only roll attack dice. The defense is purely deterministic. So I, I like it when a game is able to do that, but it's a testament to the fact that Shadespire does other things so well that I'm willing to accept the fact that it's a very small volume of dice being rolled with a, a, a series of very strange results. On occasion. Not always, but on occasion. So the other negative point I have is the terminology they use on the cards. It seems very excessive and very negative to newer players. They go on about, you know, in the it's very reminiscent of the the game I always use when I talk about bad rule books and that's divine right you know the third party of the non-active player trying to activate the non-aligned you know monster group and they use wording like that in this game where it's like in the first activation of the next turn if the first player right the more i play it i can see maybe why they've used wording like this maybe they want to bypass any problems they're going to get in the future by you know using the same you know, overwordy descriptions and all these actions, right? So in tournaments or when they bring in new factions with all sorts of different cards, they've covered all the bases maybe, but it just seems not very useful. 
the cards are very verbose. Initially, I thought that this complaint was overblown, but the more we've played the game, we still have to spend, even with the same cards that, w that we run across regularly, even very simple effects, you end up with a non-trivial amount of text on a card to describe how it works. And you're right, a lot of them are the first act the first fighter of the following activation, X, Y, and Z. And it's just, it's just, for a simple game with relatively simple interactions, it's a lot of words. And I can say, having perused the FAQ and some of the rules questions on BoardGameGeek, if their intent was to make sure that everything was worded in such a way that there won't be conflicts, they've failed. Because like any game of this type with lots of different unique cards, there are a number of interactions that aren't immediately intuitively obvious. It's not problematic. It's just that they haven't earned clarity with this verbosity. It's just made it verbose. It's a very simple game, but every time we pull it out, there are a couple things, couple nagging bits that I can't quite remember. Little weird bits where it doesn't work quite the same way as it would in other games. You know, some of them are the standard problems like line of sight. Line of sight is always a problem in games like this. Whatever. I'm not going to blame them too much for that. But the setup, I never remember how to do quite properly. It's a semi-interactive affair where you do things in a very fixed stage, and I can never remember what happens when, and there are two roll-offs, but I don't remember where they work. Anyway, for a simple game that's very accessible, they, they, they've done a number of usability, there are a number of usability issues that stand in the way, which is unfortunate, because I really do think that with a large enough audience, this could have a serious competitive scene. I will note, just as an aside... If you play the game or if you're interested in, in playing the game, do read the official fact. There's an errata to how uh, a process called rolling off works. To roll for initiative, you roll off. And the rules in the rulebook will basically guarantee you're going to get tie after tie after tie after tie. But they very quickly solved that with an, an errata. And now roll offs, I haven't seen a tie happen since. And so it's very much good for the game. That, of course, does show that the game is being supported and the Games Workshop is being considerate both to the rules questions and even some of the usability problems that people have had in the past. So good for them. That sort of ties into my next point. I'm wondering, with all of these skirmish games that are coming out lately, and there are quite a few, do these games need a big following like they, like they used to? Or do the companies even care that they get a big following? Are they going for that just that initial purchase, you know, in quick, you know, rapid, you know, expansions off the beginning and then just, you know, let it go and see where it comes to, you know. Well, I'm certainly hopeful that the game gets a good following because as you said, because of the flexibility you have in deck building and because of the interesting variety in the ways you can approach the game, I think a vibrant tournament scene allows for lots of different unique play experiences. And so Games Workshop has been trying to support organized play. In Montreal, There's uh, I spoke with an employee of Games Workshop there, and they're having organized tournaments, and he has been selling out of starter sets like crazy. Uh, I know that here, locally, there hasn't been any organized play, but the expansion sets keep selling out, which is a good sign. And I don't think that it needs necessarily to have a huge audience, because a game like this is relatively small and self-contained. But it is nice to be able to, certainly if nothing else, to be re reward Games Workshop when they do something good and innovative and, and solid design. And so if people, if more people play Shadespire, I think that's for the good. Yeah, for the tournament point, I, I really like the fact that there's like no point value. There's nothing there. It's just, it's just building the decks, you know, having that number of cards. They've made the cards, as far as I've seen so far, relatively balanced. The miniatures are fantastic. The setup, all you do is put up the objective tokens, all the spaces are marked, you know, where you're going to start your guys. I think it's, a, for a tournament system, I think it, they've got it going on for sure. 
they've made a number of very clever decisions to make sure that everything's nice and clean. I think I initially objected, you know, part of me likes building armies. Part of me likes picking the different units and finding the right combinations. But I think they, they made a wise decision for a game of this complexity and length to uh, avoid broken combinations. I mean, it's much easier to make sure that the ecosystem of the game remains balanced and healthy when it's the case they're able to exert that kind of control over your squads. So I And when playing the game, I honestly don't miss it. Well, I meant to ask you earlier, we were talking about, like, with Blood Bowl, you know, they have this silly thing where it's a big tournament and, you know, they're, the sides are fighting each other and stuff like that. Do they have, I haven't actually, you know, looked into the books very deeply. Do they have any any fluff whatsoever? Is it Are these two you know, sides just meeting like in a skirmish battle or is it, is it like some sort of tournament style thing or? No, it's something about a doomed city and various people either get trapped or voluntarily go to go find artifacts slash whatever, whatever. It's all like, look, I read it and it's all just standard games workshop nonsense. It's not supposed to be any sort of organized tournament setting in the universe. It's all about, meeting engagements or raids or plundering of various factions that happen to be in the city called Shadespire. Gotcha. That's interesting enough. It's fine. It's fine. It gets the job done. All right, so my final thoughts on it. Are we ready for final thoughts? My final thoughts are when I got into gaming, it was always about the experience. And mostly it was miniature games at the start, you know, where you're finding combos of armies or combos of units or leaders with units. And it was like removing core game mechanisms, like in Fantasy Battle, we'd just play games with no magic or play games in certain ways. It was just, you know, trying to break the game system. And I pretty well stopped playing miniature games when this tournament system came in. So I'm not really sure how I feel about game, about Shadespire overall, because it really is at its core, a tournament style game. When I played miniature things, it was never about who won or lost. It was just about the experience. And in Shadespire, there's definitely a winner. There's definitely a loser. So overall, I think it's a fantastic game. But just that one part of it, you know, leaves sour grapes, I suppose you could say. I can respect that. I'm a great appreciator of skirmish games, and I've played lots and lots of them. And as I've said, just to summarize, I think Shadespire does a really, really good job of avoiding lots of the traps that other skirmish games fall into. The activation system is clever. It rewards maneuver. It's not going to degenerate into a slog. And it manages to keep things tight and accessible. I agree with you that it's a shame that the way the card system works kind of undercuts its accessibility. I also think it's a bit unfortunate that the emphasis on deck building also kind of hampers the accessibility because when you're teaching a new player, you kind of sort of have to make a deck for them and then that kind of reduces some of the excitement of it. So yeah, it wants to be a tournament game in very much the same way that Magic the Gathering is a tournament game or other competitive games of that ilk. I enjoy it on a pickup level just as just for casual games. And uh, if there were a local tournament scene, I would probably want to go participate in that, uh, in that as well. Just to see how it was, I wouldn't necessarily be optimistic. A lot of tournament scenes I've participated in, the atmosphere has been borderline toxic. So who knows what it would The other thing we should like. talk about is the card system online, right? The fact that they've made available all the cards online so you can sort of, you know, help bypass the huge setup of making your decks at the beginning of the game by, by either you know, making a deck beforehand or knowing all the cards so it's easier for you to make decks at the beginning. You're right. They've been supporting this really well. 
They've been very responsive for, uh, to questions. They've been very responsive to issues like the, the roll-offs, as I mentioned. And the online card database is no joke. They've got a whole bunch of suggested decks. They've got a whole bunch of analysis about different ways to play. And they've got every card available in the database. And since they've got a base game and then four expansions, four faction expansions, there's a, there's a lot there. So it can get as deep and complicated as you want to. Or, on the other hand, if you just want some pre-built decks, they've got some of that too. So I, I really do appreciate the way Games Workshop has stepped up on this product. Because in the past, even some of the more interesting boxed stuff, they would release and then just let die. And not pay any attention to it. Not not even so much as release a fact. And I don't demand constant regular expansions, although we're getting that for Shadespire as well. But the mere fact that they're supporting the products they've already put out, I think, is is very promising. Yeah, I'm looking forward to more plays for sure. And that is Shadespire by Games Workshop. Now on to our feature topic... House rules. I'd like to start with a little story. Story of early nerd rage on the part of a young hobbyist gamer. So this is a game called Louis Fourteenth, which is an area majority game by Rudiger Dorn. It's quite good. A little bit more cumbersome than it needs to be. And I was over at somebody's house and they were explaining the rules and they were explaining the rules wrong. It was weird. They just presented the scoring rules. I'm like, wait a minute. I know that those rules are incorrect. I said, isn't it like this instead of the way you said it? And they said, oh, no, no, we're just playing with a house rule. And I was so mad. Here's the thing. I just have to start off with this because it makes me so... so, People can have different attitudes towards house rules. But I think that we should all agree, as civilized human beings, as people who want to be decent to each other, as, as you so appropriately pointed out, if you're going to be playing by a house rule, if you have altered the published rule, tell the players what's going on. I think we can all agree that that is a reasonable minimum. I would, I would argue further that you should get their consent, that you should get their approval of the house rule and be willing to play by the published rules if someone strongly objects. But I'd, I'd even be willing to set that aside. At a minimum, you need to declare that you're playing by a house rule. Does that make sense to you, Walker? For sure. Like I was saying earlier, my early gaming experiences is, uh, were always for the experience. And I remember we had house rules back in the day. And thinking back on what they were before, they were ludicrous and foolish. Now that, you know, you know, we're playing board games more where, you know, experience matters and it's not all just for the fun of it. Not to say that it's not fun, but it's it's definitely trying to manipulate the rules in order to get an advantage over other people. These house rules that we played with. Like I'm just thinking of our risk games where we did silly things at the beginning and how I would never play that way again. Now, sometimes house rules are introduced because you're trying to fix the game. Like, for example, I've seen people try to... I could very easily imagine, as as an example, trying to layer on top of a game like Fireball Island that has very, very cool components and an awesome gimmick, trying to make an actual game on top of that. And so that might have been the original motivating factor behind Rob Davio on the team redeveloping Fireball Island, and, and hopefully they'll be successful. So I'm certainly sympathetic to the impulse. When I see a game mechanism that strikes me as egregiously terrible, I, I can certainly sympathize with someone who wants to make it better. Usually, though, my first impulse is to just walk away rather than try to make a game into what I want it to be. Right? I could just go play games that I know are already what I want them to be. But part of that, I think, might just be the benefit of having access to so many different kinds of games and the sort of luxury of being a collector and having all these things already. Now, there is a practice, and I, I just want to know uh, your, your thoughts on it. I've seen people try to house rule a game in the middle of their first playing. No, that goes into a point I was going to make, which is ridiculous. If it's a, a newer game, like the way I'm looking at, at, at house rules now, if it is a new game, I would refuse to play with any house rules. 
just because it's a new experience. It's a newer game. I want to know, you know, what it's all about because you haven't had a chance to even experience it yet. So if it's an older game, I would assume that the person has played it multiple times and that a house rule is there that they know from experience that it's just better this way. But also that being said, sometimes I'm wondering if the designer has put certain rules in to steer players into a certain way that he wants this game to be played. As we know, there are thousands of games out there. If you don't like the way this game plays, then there are other games to play. Maybe the designer wants you to play this way, or maybe they've made this rule in order to balance out another part of the game. Like there's these certain cards that might come up that if you've played, if you haven't done you know, part of this game a certain way, they're going to make these cards completely overpowered or, or worthless, right? So that's my feeling on it. I, I agree with you overall. I, I definitely don't think if anyone is teaching a game for the first time and they're like, well, you know, I just have this general preference about things. I'd rather do it this way. I'd be like, no, 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 let, let's let's try it with the published rules and, and see what's what. There are, there are some times where I've seen people who wanted to house rule something in the middle of the first play, and that's some people just have a very, very, very low threshold for house ruling things. But then there's sort of a midpoint. And about this, I'm kind of of two minds. I'm thinking about one person I know. I knew somebody when I lived back in Boston who was very firmly of the opinion that anytime a card game, a game with cards, had a face-up display from which you could draw replacement cards, you ought to just increase the size of the display. Obviously, within reason, he wouldn't be in favor of having the entire deck face up. But, you know... I've played uh, games with a face-up display of two cards, and I certainly, on the face of it, don't see a problem with always increasing that to, say, a minimum of four. I wouldn't do it automatically, but if I were playing a game with him and he's like, let's just increase the the card display, that's fine. Now, obviously, you can further elaborate on that. You can have a two-stage card display, right, where you you draw from the bottom row of a card display, and that causes cards from the top to slide down and then become available. I don't know if I'd always be in favor of that always being there, but you know, there's some there's some general policies towards house rules that some people have that I don't regard as obviously noxious. But then there's like some rules like picking first player or when you're placing things on the map or something. I'm under the new what do they call it? The snake way, you know, where you go when you're placing things on the map, you start with the first player and they go all around with the last player and the last player gets placed twice and you go back around the other way. Like, even if that's not in the rules, I tend to think that seems to be balancing the game more often than not. But sometimes you'll find out later on that sometimes they've given other pillars advantages in other ways. So you've like messed that up. So yeah, start player is tricky. I do... I don't even consider this a house rule, but we almost never pay attention to the start player rules in rule books about how to select a start player, you know, youngest player, oldest player, or, you know, player last of the moon or whatever. You know, what biggest beard. Have. Biggest beard, sure. That, that, that would be a stiff competition in most uh, gaming nights. But in terms of compensating for start player advantages, it is the case that some games are shockingly inept at mitigating that. A classic example is, of course, the greatest game ever made, Tigers and Euphrates. Many people who take the game very, very seriously always have it so that the start player and indeed the first two players in four-player games only have one action on their first turn, not two. I understand that some tournaments play by that rule as well. And it's strange because the good doctor himself, when he designed Through the through the Desert, had a rule exactly like that. You don't get the same placements if you're the, if you're the start player in Through the Desert. You get only one placement on your first turn. And that seeks to mitigate the fact that not only... Do you have the advantage of selecting whatever geography you want to start out in? You're also probably, on average, going to get more turns. And I remember back when Board Game Geek, in its earlier days, it had a widget where you could play Tigers and Euphrates online. 
and they would just track the details of who won what game. And indeed, if you don't compensate for the start player advantage, the start player wins a very strong percentage of the time, much, much more than 25% in a four-player game. So that that's hard to ignore. So part of me always feels a little bit dirty when playing the greatest game ever made, not by the rules as printed, but I'm sympathetic to the drive for it. And it is shocking that a lot of games don't compensate for start player advantage. Yeah, you touched another point is you touched on it earlier, games with fantastic components that fail to meet up to your expectations and then you change change the rules up in order to, you know, use these components. Things that come to mind or the one that comes to mind right offhand would be Android by Fantasy Flight Games. They had this fantastic cyberpunk world where a lot of the game mechanics fell apart but you have so many great components and such a great world and other mechanisms that are great. There's there's a rule book online that I haven't had a chance to try out. I should really should and get back to everyone about it. Oh, like a fan edit? Yeah, fan edit of the oh. rules. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give that a try because I've I've kept this game just because it's you know it's it's the feel of it's so fantastic. I can't you know bring myself to get rid of it. It's also because you're a hoarder. I mean, yeah, I'm a hoarder. And the other one that comes to mind is this: all these games that are coming out by Simon. Right, you're gonna have so many all these figures. Sometimes the rules don't live up. World of Smog is, you know, quickly, you know, falling into that. I shouldn't say that because I haven't played any of the campaigns yet, but you have this great world of figures and things that you could easily manipulate the rules into something that is more playable. So I'm you know, sympathetic to that part. I love it though when a designer chimes in a few years after the game has been released with some sort of quote unquote official variants. And those I've had a great deal of success with. We talked about Dogs of War last week and how I always play by the designer's suggested variant. And it really, really improves the play experience. The same thing happened with another favorite game of mine, a game called Senji, which I haven't talked a lot about it in this podcast, which is a shame because Senji is is a, a truly brilliant design in a lot of ways. It had a designer's official variant for turn order in the fall season. And it really, I think, improves the game as well. So I really, really like it when designers show up, and uh, you know, especially a, a couple years after publication, to offer uh, offer variants. And so those kinds of edits are always appreciated. It's like it's like getting a free second edition. What's not to love about that? Exactly. Some other points I have about house rules is that when expansions come out, right? If you have a house rule, it, it might not interact with any expansions that come out after. When you bring new players in, right? Like you said earlier, when you, you were brought in as a new player and they didn't really tell you that they're going to use this new rule or when you bring these games to conventions and sometimes you, maybe you're just so used to using these house rules that you've now introduced new people to these games and you didn't tell them it was a house rule and now you've you know modified their experience of the game. Yeah, there is only one game that I can think of that is that I play regularly with a house rule that is not from the designer, came purely from the experiences of my own playgroup. And it's dangerous. I've played the game so many times now, I often forget to mention. And that's in Tribune, play with a house rule whereby you can't start the game with a leader card in your hand. You get a random, uh, uh, you, you get dealt six cards randomly and you pick any four. And basically the house rule is that since leaders on the first turn of the game are so strong, leaders are a type of card. If you draw any leaders in your initial draw you discard them and draw a replacement so that everyone starts with four non-leaders in in their hand 
And on occasion, I admit, I've, I've run afoul of my own very eminently reasonable rule. I am indeed the hypocrite that I always knew I would grow up to be. I sometimes forget to mention that that is a house rule that we're playing by, which is a shame because I really do think, I, I agree, if you're teaching new players, you have to let them know that you've modified the game. I really object to people who just say, oh, you know, my way is obviously better. That may or may not be, but I think that ideally you want to get the consent of the people you're dealing with. Now, that having been said, there's another kind of, it's it's kind of like a house rule, it's close cousin that I firmly approve of, and that's minigames. We've talked about our deception minigame, where you get make a band name out of the cards you're dealt. By the way, uh, uh, listeners should know that the publisher of Deception, Gray Fox Games, reached out to us on Twitter and gave their own suggestions for band names. Uh, one of them is Tiara Steamroller, which I think is a great, great band name. The other band is Monocle Bees. Ooh, Monocle Bees, very nice. I, I don't know. I, pr- I prefer Tiara Steamroller. I think Monocle Bees is, is sounds like twee indie hipster rock. But anyway, the other mini game, which is far less evolved, but I think it, it is still diverting when we play Hyperborea, which is an excellent bag builder game that we quite enjoy. A lot of the tech cards that you can buy have really, really weird creatures on them, like bizarre flying manta rays or weird velociraptors pulling chariots all done in a very serious like fantasy art style so it, it's nothing too goofy i'm making it sound goofier than it is and at the end of the game we can de- we declare that so there's the winner with the most points but the real winner is the one with the best animals that's right the moral the moral winner is whoever has the coolest mounts the legitimate sure. victory is the one with the best menagerie in front of them and this actually uh, relates to one thing i wanted to flag which is how many people play Galaxy Trucker with a house rule without realizing it. I've seen a lot of people basically ignore what it says in the rule book about who wins in Galaxy Trucker. The, the rule book is very clear. In Galaxy Trucker, you win if you make any money. And if you end the game with a positive amount of money in Galaxy Trucker, you have won the game. And so there are multiple winners. It's not a co-op game, but it's a game with multiple winners. And a lot of people who play assume that that's a lie. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but that's what is in the rules. So if you're going to play with only one winner, you're playing by a house rule. I think a very uncharitable house rule. So just check the, check the end of your rulebook in Galaxy Trucker, by the way. It's in there. I don't know if somebody taught you how to play the game online or if you learned through the app, but it's in it's in the rulebook, and if you play the, any other way, then uh, you're playing a house rule. Oh, they usually play whoever has the most money is the winner? It specifically says in the rulebook, who cares if some joker has more money than you? Your goal was to make money, and you did. That's right. I like that rule. It's a fabulous rule, and you can play by a different rule if you want, but know that you're not playing the real game, and fake games make Vlada cry. So yeah, that's mostly where I come at house rules. Designer made second editions, always awesome. Sub game, sub mini games you get to play can be awesome. But overall, respect the consent of the governed. If you're going to have a house rule, try to make it a minor influence on the game. If you're going to try to turn the game into something that it isn't, maybe you should be playing something else. And above all, at the very least, disclose when you're playing with a house rule. Let let people weigh in on whether they'd like to try it with the rules as published and be flexible about it. True. And some of these expansions that these companies are coming out with are almost like house rules, right? Where they give you all these different modules you can sort of attach on. They seem like almost like they're like in-studio house rules that, hey, let's make an expansion with this stuff. Sure, sure. Or the number of things that become official variants after people suggest them in variants in BoardGameGeek, you know. A fair number of variants end up being expansion material. So that I definitely don't object to. I mean, crowdsourcing good game design ideas is is always a, a good policy if it produces some good stuff. 
so long as there's a strong editorial hand at the tiller, then then all's well and good. I just really find it tiresome when people think they know better than the game designer even before they finish the first play. That just really rubs me the wrong way. Or there's a game that came out recently where they didn't even finish the game and they expected all the other people to finish the game for them. That was, I don't, I don't want to drop, you know, who it was, but. That was a Kickstarter. They sort of like published this half-finished game. And you're then... not you're not narrowing it down, Walker. I, you think you're making a specific reference to something, but there are lots and lots of Kickstarters that work <laughs> they just that way. That, that dump out a game and expect the fans to finish it for them. Yeah, this or... is. I mean, we talked about this when we were talking about rule books. I mean, a game with an incomprehensible rule book that's basically an unfinished game that hasn't been play tested and not enough development work. I mean, welcome to the age of crowdfunding. That's just the way that it works. I suppose so. So that's what we think about house rules. Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by email at justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-I-D-C at gmail.com. You can find me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at all the games you like. If you'd like to reach out to us collectively, you can find us on Facebook. The So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page is where we keep most of our discussion. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if you can. Thank you once again very much for joining us. We appreciate your time, and we hope to see you again soon. Take care. And if you liked it, tell a friend. And if you hate it, tell an enemy. See you next week. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. These newfangled technology, the twits and the twitters and the tweeter twums. Oh, shut up. <laughs>